1 Corinthians 15, 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this mortal, or this corruptible, must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So, when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's unite our hearts, shall we, and ask God's blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for uh, the opportunity to be gathered once again in God's house. Thank you, Father, as we thought this morning for the great treasure that we have in the Bible. And I pray, Father, that you would just encourage our hearts tonight as we continue on looking at the great subjects of the future. I pray, Father, that we will understand something of the joy of the victory that this passage presents. Whether we think of days to come for ourselves or whether we think of days behind us and folks who have gone to know the Lord, we thank you for the victory that the resurrection means. And I pray, Father, you bring it home in a clear and practical way to our hearts tonight. I pray this in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, you know that what we're doing now is our great doctrinal themes of the Bible, sort of bringing that to a conclusion with a look at the last thing, which is the last things. And Bible students refer to this technicality. Uh, technically as eschatology. It's the study of last things. And we're just going to use kind of a very practical uh, title for this unit at the end of this series, What to Believe About the Future. And I mentioned gr that there are eight great events that will unfold in the future. And we've looked at two of these so far. The third one we're going to look at tonight. So first of all, the rapture of the church. We looked at that. The judgment seat of Christ. We looked at that. Tonight, the resurrection. And then the tribulation, the second coming, the millennium, the great white throne judgment, and the new heaven and the new earth, or eternity future. We'll be looking at those things in future days, God willing, but tonight the resurrection. I would like to talk about four thoughts tonight in respect to the resurrection, and we will be looking at a good deal of information. I have a lot of these verses ready at hand, so I won't be asking you to turn to them. We'll try to save time that way. But I do, I do want to try to survey this and pause here and there to make some application. Um, first of all, I want to talk about the importance of the resurrection. Then I want to talk about the order of the resurrection. Then I want to talk about the body of the resurrection. That might be the most practical thing that we're interested in tonight. What, what's that mean to us? What, what type of a body will we have in the resurrection? And fourthly, the key to the resurrection, because there is a key to it. There's a key to knowing that you're going to participate in it, and we'll get to that here in just a little while as we move to the fourth point. The importance of the resurrection, that first point is up. So let me ask you a question tonight. In the light of all the people who claim that there is no such thing as a future life, in the light of all the people who claim that there is no such thing as a resurrection, just how important really is the resurrection? 
People who deny the resurrection are certainly not new. Think about this, that in the days of Jesus, the Sadducees, which comprised one of the main sects of the Jewish uh, people, Jewish religious sects, they denied the resurrection. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 23 says this, the same day came unto him, that is Jesus, the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection. And that is why they were sad, you see. They didn't believe in the resurrection. There were the philosophers at Athens. Do you remember them? Paul encountered them. Acts chapter 17 and verse 18. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him, and some said, what will this babbler say? Other some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. That seems so strange to them. Verse 32 goes on and says, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. And so, how important is the resurrection? Should we contend for the resurrection? Should we stand by the resurrection? Should we insist that the Bible teaches the resurrection? And the answer to all of that is overwhelmingly yes. And why do we say this? Why is the resurrection so important? And I would say to you that it is no under, overstatement whatever to say that the resurrection is everything. The resurrection truly is everything. The resurrection is the whole enchilada, if you want to use another expression. It's the whole ball of wax. It's the whole nine yards. Everything is tied to the resurrection. I'd like to give you three quick thoughts on this tonight. We don't have a lot of time to tarry with them, but most of them are anchored in this chapter but I'll give you some other verses for them. First of all, if it is no overstatement that the resurrection is everything, why is that so? And firstly, it is because it is central to the gospel. If you look back earlier in this chapter, you will find Paul outlining the gospel that he preaches. And so he says this, verse number one, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. He says that's important because he says it's the message, verse two, by which you are saved. And then in verse 3, he begins to tell us what this message is in encapsulated form. He says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. The, the ordinance of baptism that we saw here tonight reminds us of this truth. It's the whole reason we do it. Do you realize, folks, that the resurrection has no meaning, or the baptism has no meaning without the resurrection. But Paul is talking about the gospel, and do you see this? It's absolutely central. He says, yes, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Yes, he was buried. But what would happen if Christ did not come out of the grave, if Christ had not been raised? Well, we would have no gospel, and Paul tells us this, not only here, but he tells us this in Romans chapter 4 and verse 25, where he says that Jesus was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Think about it, folks. All that he said about the message of his death, all that he said about the reason for his death, when he talked about the fact that he came into the world to give his life a ransom for many, when Paul talked about the fact, as I said this morning, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, had he not been raised from the dead, it would have basically showed that his atoning sacrifice had no value. His word was not true. His gospel is powerless. 
And so it's not too much to say at all that it's central to the gospel. Secondly, it is foundational to Christian hope, which is something else Paul brings out in this chapter. Let's go to verse 14. And if Christ be not risen, he says, then is our preaching vain. Your faith is vain also. Yen yea, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. And look for the word hope in the next verse. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. We don't have much hope because our hope is in someone who's dead. Our hope is in a message that's proven to be vain and false. Paul says that's not so, but the resurrection is foundational to Christian hope. We have no basis of hope without the resurrection. I like the way Peter talks about it in chapter 1 and verse 3 of 1 Peter, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, who according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope, the King James says. Maybe the idea may be a little better, a living hope. We have a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope. And thirdly, it's no overstatement to say that the resurrection is everything because it is critical to the life of victory. Again, think about what you saw tonight. Buried with him by baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. In other words, you explain to the children when you are baptized, you go under the water because that's being identified with his burial. We don't want to put you under dirt. It would be kind of difficult to do that. So we use water, and we say buried with him by baptism. We're identifying ourselves and saying that we have trusted Christ as our Savior so that his death on the cross is my death on the cross. He died in my place. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. But they don't stay there. They come back up as a testimony to the new life we have in Christ. What kind of life is that? Well, it's a life that's empowered for us to live victoriously by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know this. Paul tells us this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. We have no power in and of ourselves to live the Christian life victoriously, but Jesus lives within us. Paul is alluding to this in Romans 8 and verse 2 when he says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Makes it possible for us to live a life unto God and a life pleasing unto God. Do you know that people seem even though people maybe who haven't been brought up in Bible Christianity, even people who have been around anything Christian seem to recognize intuitively that the resurrection is everything. It's the entire basis of our faith, our gospel, our message, our hope, our life of victory. I may have told you this before, but when George H.W. Bush was president of the United, vice president of the United States, so during the presidency of Ronald Reagan, a man by the name of Leonid Brezhnev died. He was the premier of the Soviet Union back in those days. And so Ronald Reagan dispatched George Bush, who was vice president, to be the official state representative of the United States at Brezhnev's funeral. 
Well, of course, there you're at a place that is the bastion, really, of atheism and denial of any biblical truth. The casket is open. People are passing by, paying their last respects. And just as the soldiers come to the coffin, they place their hands on the lid of it, ready to close that casket. The wife of the premier of the deceased, the wife of the premier, now deceased of the Soviet Union, Mrs. Brezhnev, walks up, puts her hand on her, over her husband's chest and makes the sign of the cross. Now, you know, beloved, there is no power in, there's no magic in making the sign of the cross, but can you imagine that? Someone who in that place and at that moment, it, it, someone has referred to this as one of the most profound acts of civil disobedience ever committed. And she was basically saying that, yeah, I know what the party says, I know what we say here, that in communism and God is dead and all of that kind of stuff, but there has to be hope. There has to be something more. There has to be some hope for life beyond. And people intuitively seem to understand that that is wrapped up in the resurrection, and it truly is. Let's talk a little bit about the order of the resurrection. Does everybody just get raised at the same time? Do you remember when Martha said to Jesus, she said, I know he's going to be raised in the resurrection at the last day. You remember that? It's, it's almost like she's thinking that the resurrection is just kind of a mega event that takes place at the last day. And what we need to understand, and you've heard this terminology before, is, is that the Bible deals in what we call progressive revelation. In other words, as you go back into the Old Testament and you find the first mention of something, you kind of find it in germ form, seed form. And then as the Bible goes on and more and more of God's revelation is given, as it pleases God, we get further insight and further insight and further insight into those events. So it shouldn't surprise us at all that someone from an Old Testament perspective might not have had the light that we can have in this New Testament day. I was thinking about that a little bit this morning when uh, Jack was talking in the, in the adult Sunday school class about Paul and the apostles and the fact that Judas was off the scene and the apostles uh, wanted to fill the vacancy, so to speak, in the apostolate. And so they had Matthias and they had the other individual. And um, I remember, I didn't raise my hand to say anything about this, there didn't seem to be time, but there, there used to be, a, this is not unknown, and, and my major was interpretation, so these kinds of things I find fascinating, but there was a, an interpreter, a commentator, I won't call his name because he, he would be very much respected by and known by many people here. He's with the Lord now. Uh, but he was sort of hard on the early church, sort of hard on the apostles and said that they were, they should have just waited, that they were, they should have uh, understood or something. No, I, you know, I don't get that out of it at all. I think they did the best they could with the insight and understanding that they had, and I think they were acting in the will of the Lord. I don't think they were out of the will of the Lord. They had no way to foresee what God was going to do. There was absolutely no way for them to foresee what God was going to do in the life of Saul of Tarsus. And Saul was a special apostle. And moreover, even though Saul referred to himself and Paul referred to himself as the apostle of the Gentiles, Think about other apostles who preached to the Gentiles. You know, Paul wasn't the only one who did it. It's just that Paul went what direction? If this is east, he went this way. What's that one? He went west. 
there's a lot of place to the east did you know that from palestine there's a lot of place to the east do you know who went to india you know who went to india thomas went to india so there were a lot of things like that and i think that this is what we have to understand here you you don't find fault with martha because she doesn't maybe have all the insight well she didn't have all the scripture it wasn't given but there is much more given to us so there's some things we can say about this paul came along and he wrote here in first corinthians chapter 15 and verse 23 that there is an order to the resurrection it's not just all a mega event that occurs for every person who has ever lived or who is living at the time at one point in time look at verse 23 in our chapter paul says this but every man in his own order and you notice the verse before for as in adam all die even so in christ shall all be made alive so how does that happen how does the resurrection unfold is there an order and paul says there is every man in his own order the word order is very interesting in Greek. The word tagma is actually a term that's used in many contexts in a military sense. And when you use it in a military sense, it's referring to a division or maybe we would say a company of troops or you might even say like a battalion, something like this. But it's a grouping of troops. And that helps us get the picture here because there are groupings. There is an order to the resurrection. And this isn't complicated. You don't have to have a special degree to understand this. Paul tells us, so let's look at it. He says, every man in his own order, who was first? Well, he says this, Christ the firstfruits. So Jesus Christ was the first to be raised in the sense of a glorified body and is the harbinger, the first fruits, just as you have that symbol in agriculture, so you have it here. He was the harbinger of a great and mighty harvest to come. Now what do we find next in verse 23? Afterward, so Jesus was raised from the dead some 2,000 years ago. But the first resurrection or more people to be raised from the dead hasn't really occurred. Oh, we know there were some people who came out of the graves as the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, all of that occurred. And they were evidences of the reality of the miracle of the resurrection, but no other resurrection so much as we know until we get to what is next afterwards, they that are Christ. Well, who are they that are Christ's? Well, he's talking here about those who are in Christ. He's talking about those who are saved. Afterwards, they that are Christ. When will that happen? When will that order occur in the resurrection? When will that division, when will that group of people, those who belong to Christ, those who know him as their personal Savior, when will they be raised? What's it say? At his coming. And isn't this what we looked at last week in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16 when we studied the rapture? For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall be raised first. There it is. That's the next division. Now, what happens next? Because if you're thinking, you're saying, all right, there are a whole lot of people who still haven't been raised from the dead. Who are those? Well, primarily, we're not going to get into all the distinctions of little groups of people here and there. We're looking at the main thoughts here. Who, who hasn't been raised from the dead yet? Well, the unsaved dead, right? Those who have yet to face uh, the resurrection unto judgment and the second death. And so here Paul sums it up by saying this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, then cometh the end. 
And he only tells us some of the things that intervene before that event takes place. But the end, what does he say? When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. So what's going to happen before this end? The kingdom? What do we call the kingdom? The millennium, the thousand year reign of Christ. That's what he's talking about here. So it's the end is not yet. The kingdom is coming first. The millennial reign of Christ is coming first. And then he says this, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. And who is the last enemy? Well, it says that in this verse. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So when is death totally abolished? Well, it happens after this. It happens after the kingdom. And we don't find out about this more specifically until we get late in the Bible. We have some references to it that I'm going to point to in a moment. But the real detail of this unfolds in Revelation chapter 20. So let me read from Revelation chapter 20, verse number 5, where John is writing and he says this, but the rest of the dead, so there they are, the ones we saw in 1 Corinthians the next main division, the rest of the dead. Live not again until the thousand years were finished, just as Paul says. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, on whom the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So what happens after the thousand years? And you have this resurrection of the rest of the dead lived not until after the thousand years were finished and it's described for us verse 12 and i saw the dead small and great stand before god and the books were opened and so we're told about that in revelation chapter 20 this what we might say by fair inference is the second resurrection that's when it occurs well, now, and these are some verses that I just wanted you to hear. Now we can better understand some of those expressions that we hear in those verses. For example, what's Jesus talking about? We can understand it better now when he talks about the resurrection of the just. See, to Martha thinking about, I know he shall be raised in the resurrection at the last day, just one big mega event, all these distinctions maybe not necessarily understood. Now we're in a position to understand what Christ is talking about. Luke 14, 14, he says, And thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. When is that? And they that are Christ's at his coming. Or, you know, when Paul was speaking, he had the opportunity to speak before Felix, the Roman procurator. Acts 24 and verse 15, here's what he said. See, these distinctions become more clear as we get more revelation. He says to Felix and ha the Jewish people, he says, have hope toward God, which they themselves, that's Paul's opponents, also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Or, again, the writings of John. Jesus is speaking, but this is really made clear. John 5, 28 and verse 29 also, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. See, the, you shall be recompensed at the resurrection of the just, or terminology like the resurrection of life, but there is also the resurrection unto damn, of damnation. And so that is the order of the resurrection. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the body of the resurrection, because as I said to you a while ago, I think this is maybe the most practical thing that we want to know about. 
Um, well, you wouldn't be alone in this, although the Corinthians, who were sort of tossing out there that maybe there wasn't a resurrection after all, sort of threw this down to Paul as a bit of a challenge. But yet we have it in verse um, 35. So look there in chapter 15. But he says, some will say, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? Well, from whatever perspective you ask that question, isn't that something we're interested in? Are you interested tonight in knowing what the resurrection body will be like? Does the Bible tell us? Are you hoping it'll be better than the one you have now? Are you hoping it'll be different than the one you have now in some ways that maybe are coming across your mind right now? Well, sure you are. And does the Bible tell us anything? You know what? Here's what we can understand, folks. First of all, we're going to talk about the lost because all we really can say about this, but all we really need to say is that the resurrection body for those that are lost, when they stand before God in final judgment, it highlights an eternity of death and suffering. How do we know this? Well, just think about some places in the Bible where we actually have references that we can understand. Think about Luke chapter 16, verse 22, where it's talking about the rich man and Lazarus. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeing, seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom, and cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame he lifted up his eyes he said father Abraham send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and put it on my tongue for I am tormented eyes to see a tongue and all it does is help to underscore and highlight for us an eternity of suffering apart from Jesus Christ. It's a sobering, sobering thought. And then when we get to the end and we come to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14, death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Folks, I'm glad that we can know about that. It can be a motivation for us to tell people about Christ it can be a motivation for us to rejoice in what we've been delivered from. And that's exactly it. I am so glad tonight that I've been delivered from that. And I believe that you are too. A.T. Pearson, the preacher, tells an interesting story about a young man that he knew who was an unbeliever. The unbeliever, the young man, told Pearson that he didn't sympathize at all with his belief in God didn't believe there was such a thing as a future state in fact this is what he told the preacher he said when I die I am going to dust and that will be the end of me you wish he didn't say that but that's a lot of people delude themselves that way it sounds good right you know when you die you're just dead you're just like the animals nothing more I've heard so many people say that and you know to me that is so um blissfully ignorant I guess might be a way to, to characterize that but that's what the young man told the preacher well it so happened that this young man had a, a mother who was a Christian she'd prayed for him for a long time 
So one day he came home, and he came home from the office. It was about lunchtime, and he said to his mother, he said, I feel fatigued. He said, I think I'll just lie down until lunch is ready. So he lay down. I don't know whether he went to his room or he went just on the sofa there, but he lay down. He lay down for a while, and he lay down, and he fell asleep. Well, at 1 o'clock, she went to, spoke, to speak to him, and she said, we're ready to sit down at the table. And he didn't respond. She couldn't get him awake. She shook him, shook him. She still couldn't get him to rouse. He was in a comatose state. Hardly any perceptible pulse. He just seemed to sink lower and lower until his breathing became scarcely perceptible. So they sent for a doctor, as you might imagine, and the doctor came and made an examination. And this is what he had to say. I'm not sure what time frame except Pearson's life that this was in, but the doctor said, I can do nothing for him. You will just be compelled to leave him as he is. He may come out of it and he may not. And the doctor left. Five o'clock that afternoon came. They were sitting around, simply watching as what appeared to be the last vestiges of life went away from this young man. He opened his eyes. He looked around. He saw his mother. He stretched out his hand toward his mother. And this is what he said, Mother, what you taught me is all true. There is a future life. I have been treading along the verge of another world and been looking, looking, and been looking over into that other world. Mother, it is all true. And he shut his eyes and died. Beloved, I don't know about those kinds of stories. You hear lots of them, but it really, I, I don't, that's not a stretch to me at all. It's sobering. But let's shift gears. You know what? For those who know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, and I hope you I hope you can rejoice in this tonight. The resurrection body symbolizes an eternity of victory. Paul gives us five glorious descriptions of what this is like. You want to know what this is like? He tells us here in this chapter. Look with me briefly at them. First of all, he says this in verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. You want to know what the resurrection body is like? It's incorruptible. What's that mean? Incorruptible means it's free from corruption, free from all moral taint. Aren't you glad there's coming a day in the resurrection when the body in which we live doesn't feel the undertow of sin? We don't feel temptation any longer. We don't know any of that any longer because there's nothing in us to respond to it anymore. No more fallen nature. No more sinful heart. Only a heart that aspires after God and wants to do God's will. And now in this life, for each of us who is saved, we're conflicted, aren't we? Now wanting to go this way and now wanting to go that way, sometimes pulled by the flesh, other times it seems pulled by the Spirit. But Paul says in the resurrection, this corruptible must put it on incorruption. You can say goodbye to all of that, and I'll be so glad, won't you? That's going to be a wonderful day. The American poet James Russell Lowell, 19th century American poet, 
had an interesting little remark about what we're talking about now. He said that a fitting epitaph for him would be, here lies that part of James Russell Lowell which hindered him from doing well. Technically, it's not just all in the physical body. It's in the sin nature. But the body we have now happens to be the seat of that. And so he doesn't put it in so bad a way. Let's look at our second one. Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. So here's your second. The resurrection body is incorruptible, and the resurrection body is glorious. What does that mean? Well, you compare it to get the meaning by the opposite of it. He says it is sown in dishonor. What's that talking about? It's exactly what Paul is talking about in Philippians 3 and verse 21 when he says, Jesus shall change our vile body that it might be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the power working uh, whereby he is able to subdue all things unto himself. What does he mean, vile body? And I think I've pointed out to you before that that phrase literally is the body of this humiliation. Do you know, beloved, that, that sin really is a humbling thing? Well, we seem to do a pretty good job of covering that up best we can. Nothing wrong with that so much, but think about it. Youth becomes something in the past, and we begin to age a little bit. Why is that? Well, the body that we have now is one that is subject to disease, subject to decay, subject to debilitation. And the further you go, we become adept at hiding it. In fact, we hide it right up to the very end, right when you go to the funeral home. They embalm you lay you out and the guy goes back there and a little makeup some clothes that look nice bless their heart some folks that suffer so towards the end almost look better there than they do in that sick bed and beloved you know this those of you who have been in this church for any length of time you're thinking about people and we've said goodbye to many of them but you can think about other people and I can tell you right now, you can go up there to Huntington Park and you can go to room 664. You might want to do that. You might want to do that if you're going to see the two people in that room alive again. Because they may not have a long time. One of them is 102 years old. That's Dorothy Maines. She go in that room and you know what? That's not the Dorothy Maines that many of you knew years ago. That's not the Dorothy Maines that I knew years ago. But age and time and the fact that these bodies are bodies of humiliation. You might want to go if you're going to see Winnie Oberman again. Lots changed maybe since the last time you were there. It's not so good right now. Hard to tell really how this is going to go. I went there Saturday and it was the most difficult visit that I've had. It's hard, very hard sometimes to go and visit with people like that that you've known and loved, people that have been towering giants of faith, people who even in old age have been clear, mentally clear that you could go and sit down and have an hour visit if you wanted and sit there and talk to them about things that they were as clear as a bell and sharp as a tack. 
And then you go and you find that all that's changed. You find that they're just a shell of their former self. How is that true? Why is that true? This is what sin does. It, not because any of the people that I just described are any worse than anyone else. This is just what sin does in our mortal body. That's why Paul calls it. But you know what? In the resurrection morning, that's all going to change. Not only will we, we be raised incorruptible, that is free of any moral taint, but our bodies will be glorious. They will share his glory. There won't be any of the humiliation of sin any longer. It'll all be his shared glory that we share, that we have. The next thing he says is also in verse 43. He says, it is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Well, we thought we were strong once. We thought that there was a day when virtually nothing could stop us. And many of us has been disabused of that notion. I remember the day, Dave, that huge tire off that machine pinned you. I bet you remember that too. Huge big tire off a machine. So heavy, so big it could have crushed him. Well, we aren't so strong when we're up against those things anymore, are we? And we become sort of disabused of that notion as time goes on. We realize that we aren't so powerful. But Jesus is all powerful. And it's going to be a wonderful thing. I don't really know how to describe all of what this means to you. It just sounds good to me. Not to have any of those weaknesses anymore. The fourth thing we find is in verse 44 that it's a spiritual body. He says it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Well, everything about us here seems to be the natural except the fact that the Holy Spirit lives within and we have a new nature. And so Paul talks about the natural man. We read that verse this morning. doesn't perceive the things of the Spirit of God and the body that we have is natural. Won't it be wonderful, he says, it is sown a natural body, is raised a spiritual body. Jesus had a spiritual body. Everything about us will be spiritual then. Not that our bodies won't have substance. Not that people won't be able to see us. Not that people won't be able to recognize us. But it was something different when Jesus rose that Sunday morning and just passed right through that stone. And the angels came later and rolled it away just so people could see he wasn't there anymore. Or when the disciples out of fear were in that room that evening and Jesus suddenly was in their midst having passed right through the door. Spiritual body. And finally, if you go to verse 53, he gives us the last one. He says, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, that we've seen. And then he says, this mortal must put on immortality. Mortality gives way to life. So you want to know what? The resurrection body is like it's incorruptible, it's glorious, it's powerful, it's spiritual, it's immortal. And one last thing, the key to the resurrection. Does this sound like something you'd be interested in having a part of? Do you want to be a part of the second resurrection, the rest of the dead, where the body is just something to highlight and underscore an eternity of suffering and death or do you want to be part of the resurrection unto life where our body is a 
testimony for all of eternity to the victory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you want to have a part in that resurrection, there's a simple key. It's not complicated. It's not hard. Jesus said it in John chapter 12, verses 25 and 26. When we get this new chorus book, it's in there. I am the resurrection and the life. What's the key? He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe in Jesus tonight as your personal Savior? Do you know that you've been saved? Because that's the key. It's all tied up in a person and a personal relationship with him. He is the key. In closing, I just ask you to think about this because this is maybe a little bit of a way to highlight the differences between what we're promised in the Bible and what we have in historic Christianity and what the religions of the world offer. And not to pick on any, but I want you to think for a moment about the differences between Christianity and Buddhism tonight. I don't claim to be an expert in Buddhism. Half the time I read what they say, it confuses me. I'm not sure they really know what they're talking about. I don't mean to be unkind, but it just, you read, I've read this stuff before. I've, I've gone to websites and listened to them try to explain what they believe and gone away more confused than I went. But I'm not confused by what Christianity teaches as opposed to Buddhism with reincarnation. Do you know, there's something about reincarnation that is appealing to the flesh. Did you think about it? Endless chances to get it right. If you think you're going to work your way to heaven, that kind of appeals, doesn't it? I mean, you get chance after chance after chance. If you don't get it right this time, how about next time? To me, that seems morbid and depressing. I'm glad to understand by God's grace, as we spoke about this morning, to be given spiritual illumination, to be able to understand that I haven't ever gotten it right yet and I never will because I'm sinful by nature. I have a Savior who got it all right for me. He's the key to the resurrection. I believe in Him. I'm buried with Him by baptism into death. And I've been raised to walk in newness of life. And I have a life to live by the power of the resurrection and a future to look forward to with him and in a body that's incorruptible, glorious, powerful, spiritual, and immortal. To me, I don't need endless chances to get it right. I just need a Savior who got it right for me. You can have that. I can have that.